Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. with an optimist. Let's do more constructive. We can do that with Ben Laidler, the global market strategist at eToro. Ben, let's start here. Looking ahead to earnings season. For many people, that's the next big test. What are you looking for? Absolutely. So that's the shoe that hasn't dropped yet, right? We've had this big drawdown in valuations. We've had the valuation recession, but earnings have been absolutely rock solid. So basically, we're in a race here, right, between inflation peaking and rolling over and us going into recession. And if earnings can continue to sort of hold, uh, then we sort of dodge that bullet and we set ourselves up for a stronger, stronger second half. If earnings crack, then um, you know, that's the ingredient for, for potentially another leg down. Now, for what it's worth, I think expectations are already pretty low. We're looking for negative earnings growth. Um, if you strip out, if you strip out the energy sector, expectations have been falling. Companies have been pretty good so far, right? And holding on to that sort of top line growth, which has obviously been helped by inflation. Right. And uh, managing to pass through the costs to, uh, to to you and I and keeping their margins, frankly, pretty close to all-time highs. Ben, this is the heart of the matter to me. Okay, so I get lousy real GDP growth, but I still have a pretty good inflation level, which I believe is a pretty good animal spirit and nominal GDP. Is that the script for the second half? It's all about inflation, right? I, I think we're pretty close to peak inflation. If we get it, if we get a little bit of relief there, that lets the Fed to sort of take half a step back. And I think this sort of re- recession freight train, which um, has sort of been picking up speed, I think takes a sort of step back. And, and I think gives room for both valuations to rise, which are now 20-year averages, and some of this sort of relief of earnings um, expectations a little bit, at least, in terms, uh, at least in terms of the market. I mean, that's the sort of bullish narrative. But we do have to the get expect- through next week, which is you know big inflation number and the start of Q2 earnings. The expectations is, I think, the key. You know, um, Lisa Shallot was on this program last week saying analysts are in crazy town right now. They need to bring their estimates down. And then uh, Michael Burry tweeted last week, we've done the valuation compression. Next up is margins. What do you expect? I mean, are we looking at a 50% drop in earnings the way we did in the great financial financial crisis, or is this just going to be 20? Well, 20 is your average, right? And I think this is going to be less than average. You know, I think there's nothing inevitable about this recession, right? I mean, risks are clearly rising, but with corporates in good shape, with consumers in good shape, your technical point is well taken. But there's nothing inevitable about this recession. It's not going to be global. We saw the China PMI this morning. China's reopening the second biggest economy in the world, and it's not going to be big, 
right? This is a typical Fed-driven recession. We're not going to have those sort of 2007, 2008 multipliers of, uh, you know, over-levered housing, over-levered banks, which gave you that sort of 45% earnings uh, drawdown. So, and again, remember, you know, the S&P 500 is the, is, is, is the cream of the crop. These are the people with the big balance sheets, with the, with the global operations. They, you know, if anybody can handle a slowdown or, or a mild recession, it's them. You are the king, Ben, of staying strong amid gloom. Compare the gloom level now to December of 2018 when you had the courage to go long in the market, one of the great calls of all time. What's the, what's the Laidler gloom meter look like right now? Well, this has been a lot more remorseless, right? We've been here for six months and nothing's worked, right? We've just closed our first quarter and, or this first half and, and second quarter where literally nothing worked. Maybe Chinese equities were up two percent, and the dollar was and the dollar was up. Nothing else works, and so I think people are very depressed, and that's one of the ingredients for this, um, for potentially about a second half that we get some relief on inflation, that valuations already adjusted, that corporates sort of hold strong, um, and you know maybe there's a little bit of you know I, I don't think corporates are completely immune here, but I don't think we're set up for an earnings collapse and sentiment. Um, you know, sentiment's terrible. Um, so I, I think those are your four ingredients for a better second half. Just on the earnings front, Ben, can you walk me through where you are less constructive? The parts of this equity market that because of earnings you would avoid? Right. So I, I think right now we want to be in the market, but, you know, I'm not a lunatic, right? The risks are high. Um, and so I think you've got to be, you want to be, I want to be pretty defensive. So I'm in the, you know, the things that, that, that the consumer staples, the utilities, the telcos, where I think the earnings risk is a lot lower. Um, and, you know, the market's telling them semis is now the worst performing sector in the market. Autos is number two. I mean, anything that's sensitive to the economy is just being taken out of the woodshed and, and, and destroyed right now. And I, I think that's where the risks, you know, remain pretty high. The one pocket of the market that's held up and you know it is energy. Yet today, that story is absolutely ripped. There is this kind of tension between the story Matt's talking about recession and what's happening in the energy market and whether those two stories can actually coexist through this year. Ben, do you think they can? I do, actually. I mean, maybe not exactly at this price, but I think we're in a high, maybe not higher, high for longer energy environment. There's no investment. Right? Drilling drill rates are half what they were the last time oil prices were up at these levels. The curve's still backward-aided. Um, and the biggest demander of oil in the world is, is recovering and is not going into recession, which is... Uh, which is China. So I, I still think it's a glass half full rather than, rather than half empty story at this point. Hey, Ben, thank you. Ben later there of Itaro. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions. So more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. 
their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Emerita Sen. She was absolutely brilliant the last time she was on with us, and we lean forward now with a gentlelady from Energy Aspects. Uh, open question, Emerita, with all that's going on. What is a significant paragraph in the note you're going to write this week? What's the thing that you're really studying right now? Two things I'd say, Tom. First and foremost is around recession. Um, I do think while there's a lot of fears around exactly how the recession is going to pan out, what it means for oil demand, uh, for us, the critical thing to highlight is that Asia, and I know you and I have talked about this a, a lot of times, China's reopening. Um, I really do think recession, or at least a mild one, is actually priced in. If you look at right. December 23 Brent futures, we are at $90. Nobody's talking about what if demand holds up a little bit better. What could prices then do? So we are looking into that. And then, of course, on the supply side, we've got the strikes going on in Norway, the Libyan outages. Right. Uh, but, you know, we've got right. some seasonal pressure coming through as well. Are the responsivenesses or the fancy word elasticities of natural gas the same as oil? Is the elasticity of Netherlands nat gas like Brent crude? So I would say on the industrial side, um, well, let's start with the consumer side. On the consumer side, absolutely not, right? Because from a consumer point of view, natural gas is electricity, which basically means that you are absolutely going to require it, particularly for home heating mm. during the winter. Um, whereas, arguably, you could drive less unless and until you have to drive to work, right? So uh, uh, from a consumer standpoint, elasticity for gas is it's even more inelastic than oil. Industry, however, we have already seen, uh, if you look at Germany, Netherlands that you talk about, they are dialing down a lot of the gas consumption uh, simply because gas prices are so, so high. Our models already br uh, build in some significant demand destruction in Europe uh, because of high gas prices. And the risks to gas prices are actually to the upside, given what went on with Freeport in the US, lower LNG from there. If Chinese demand picks up in the winter, you could see even less LNG come through to Europe from the Middle East as well. So again, risks, just like you guys were talking about, is absolutely to the upside when it comes to TTF prices in Europe. I will, uh, Tom, I will see your elasticity and raise you a fungibility. Why aren't natural gas prices as, why isn't natural gas as fungible as oil, Amrita? We see such a huge difference in the price uh, here versus the price in the Netherlands. Uh, why aren't they as interchangeable? Oh, absolutely. Great question, actually. It's just for the simple reason that Oil is, has always been uh, a more global commodity. Remember when the U.S. used to not be able to export crude, we had WTI trade at $20 discounts to Brent, right? That's when it wasn't as fungible. Now, with exports allowed, again, ultimately, the price will dictate flows, whereas gas is slowly getting there. It's been more regional markets. And even right now, the U.S. doesn't export as much gas as probably it could do at these current prices. And then, of course, you've had the... 
outages uh, at Freeport. So that's the big problem and the, and the difference uh, in gas. It's always been more localized markets, Middle East supplying Asia, Russia supplying Europe, and kind of U.S., its own little market, U.S. and Canada. I, I want to ask also about the competing calls on oil this morning, Amrita. City, of course, $65, which makes sense if we have deep a deep global recession. On the other hand, J.P. Morgan um, is saying it could go as high as 380, which is, you know, an eye-grabbing headline. <laughs> but what Natasha Kaneva puts behind that, I think, is even more interesting. She says, this is the J.P. Morgan analyst, um, that be, given Moscow's robust fiscal position, they can afford to weaponize oil and just pull 5 million barrels a day off of the global market. Do you think that's realistic? We actually don't think uh, that's likely because so far um, we still see Russia acting as a rational player in the market, both for oil and for gas. It doesn't mean that uh, energy doesn't get weaponized, I mean, particularly in the winter, more so for gas than oil. We could see that, uh, but definitely not our base case. But I think in both cases, what I will highlight is that these are very eye-grabbing numbers precisely because, you know, you guys are talking about it. It makes the media headlines. Um, I would argue even in a pretty deep recession, I just don't see oil prices going Going below $80, maybe even not even $90, because of years of underinvestment. Look at the US at $120, $110 WTI, the Dallas Fed survey, all it talked about was labor shortages, equipment shortages, and steel costs. Nobody's actually able to raise production very much, so that's on the one side. If Russia were to actually cut 5 million barrels, but it doesn't even have to do 5, it could do just 2 or 3, given how tight the market is, you can literally pick a number. I mean, 380, it could be 4-something, it could be 2-something, I mean, well, Amrita, just you to jump in, because when you have like 20 seconds, so forgive me, could the global economy tolerate anything with a two, a three-handle once you get a 200, no, 300? No, We would... No, absolutely not. I mean, then the only reaction has to be a very, very deep recession and oil demand has to collapse by five, ten, like five to eight million barrels per day to even balance this market. Amrita Sen, thank you. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join 
Jordan Rochester, it's not that he's been alone, but he's been way articulate about the case for weaker euro. Jordan Rochester is with Nomura. He's been with us often. We get an update this morning. Jordan, I mentioned earlier the great Martin Feldstein of Harvard, who noticed that when you get weak euro like 1985 or 2001, you get a stochastic response. It goes down it's weak, and it turns around. Does this have the same feeling that when we find Euro weak bottom, we'll turn around and come right back? Tom, you're kind of on the money there about the non-linearity of, of the Euro moves. This morning, it, it's, I can explain why it's moved, but it's been non-linear. It's been much faster than folks expected. And a lot of people who were looking to the normal macro drivers, the sort of ECB headlines, yeah. to suggest why it could go lower, they didn't have that. It was Norwegian gas flows. We can come back to that. But in answer to your question, I don't think Euro's a buy at all, Tom. I think we go towards parity. I think we could even break parity. And the moves will be non-linear when we do that, because it will be because of gas supplies being cut off, perhaps with Nord Stream 1. And I think as we get to these levels, we've broken key right. levels all the way back to the French uh, elections and so forth. Periods of uh, very strong Euro weakness. We've broken those. We're in a no man's land now, all the way down to parity. If we are nonlinear, does that suggest that Mr. Putin can drive Euro lower? He already is. And I think, he, uh, yes, he can do more. So to give you some more color on why I keep mentioning gas, the move today is because German electricity prices, go onto your terminal, type in Germany electricity one year, the, the record highs for the one year part of the curve. So it's not a temporary story anymore. German consumers will be paying record prices, whoever's buying at these levels for the next year. And that's gonna affect consumers' contracts. So that's a consumption squeeze for European consumers. That's recession risks. Recession risks push Euro lower. Norwegian uh, uh, workers have gone on strike. So 13% of Norwegian gas supplies are turning off this week. And we've looked into it. If someone can let me know, but we don't see an end date to those strikes until their demands are met. That strike so we escalation, have a, a uncertainty on that. Jordan, this headline just crossed in a Bloomberg that it could shut 56% of gas exports on further escalation. That's a problem. So can you tell me to what extent your call on euro dollar, and you are looking for parity, I know that, and have been for a while. To what extent is that call basically a call on European gas prices? It's, it looked a little bit like that. Um, it, that's been the, the primary driver of the volatility, especially today. But there's a few other factors as well that feed into the Euroview. It's not just about gas prices. Global recession risks. We're looking for a US recession in Q4 of this year. Euro does not strengthen when we have recessions, especially with the peripheral yield risks that we have in Italy and Spain and elsewhere. So there's recession risks driven by the global phenomenon of what's going on. Europe's main trading partner is China. China's going for what we call a COVID business cycle. And we've just had another wave of COVID-19 cases, some more lockdowns announced just over the past 24, 48 hours. So the exports for Germany are being weighed on by gas prices, making German manufacturing less competitive, seven times more expensive. That's how much gas prices, electricity prices are in Germany versus America. So American exports, more competitive, and Europe's main trading partner, China, is in a state of slowdown dealing with lockdowns. Jordan, you have uh, a lot of the same problems in your island nation there um, that people on the continent of Europe have. Plus, you've got um, Brexit uh, seeming flaring up again, right, with um, the Johnson government throwing out agreements that they made just a year ago. Uh, how much worse can it be for the pound? 
Well, we are short sterling looking for 118 in cable, and I think with the non-linear non moves I just described, in euro dollar, cable could go below that as well. So that the direction is lower, it's just a question of how much lower. And in terms of the risks of reasons, the Bank of England is less hawkish than other central banks. That's making US yields less attractive to foreign investors. The UK's trade surplus doesn't exist, it's a deficit, and it's getting wider. So the UK is facing similar problems to Europe, but a key difference is the UK has Brexit, of course, and I'll come on to that. But the UK raised taxes, national insurance taxes went up. The energy subsidies that Boris Johnson's government announced didn't really cover everybody. It did a good amount for the lower half of, of society, but for the middle classes and higher, didn't do much. So you see a consumption squeeze. But yes, let's bring it to Brexit. I think markets are looking at the Northern Ireland Protocol noise, but I don't think sterling actually has a premium for the potential for an FTA uh, to be suspended. Now, I don't think we will see the Northern Ireland Protocol situation lead to the EU issuing sanctions or issuing anything like that in terms of tariffs or quotas. So that's why the market is ignoring it, because I agree with the market there. But if it was to happen, who knows what can happen in these markets, then sterling would be even lower than 118. So we're looking at 110 towards parity in that scenario. That's why I don't think it's going to happen. That is just a nuclear button for the politics. Some big so calls there. Jordan, thank you, buddy. As always, Jordan Rochester there of Namura out of the city of London. Tom, the cost of capital is going in the other direction big time. Well, the cost of capital will be at both nominal and real, and that is a good uh, place to start with John Riding, his chief economic advisor at Breen Capital, has been of assistance to us for many, many a year. And John, I think the question right now on cost of capital is now do businesses, do they think in the nominal space or is everybody a slave to the inflation-adjusted analysis? Well, Tom, if you think about it, we haven't had these kind of inflation problems since the late 70s, early mm -hmm. 1980s. So many businesses are simply not used to handling an inflationary environment. And money illusion exists amongst consumers and money right. illusion exists amongst businesses as well. I mean, if you look at the policy rate, so start with the policy rate. With a CPI inflation rate of 8.6%, you're still looking at a policy rate that is extremely negative in real terms. So all the anxiety about the Fed raising interest rates, um, it, it has to be looked at in the context of, of that inflation rate. And businesses, okay, well, I think, you know, the idea that we've had this bear market in equities, but we it's been a multiple adjustment to a higher nominal yield. It hasn't so far okay, been well, an earnings adjustment. And I think of you and Michael Darda on this, and this is with your work at the Bank of England at the Fed uh, years ago. So many people haven't lived this. And what I'm hearing from relative optimists, we will adjust as yields move higher. We will adjust as Powell, Lagarde, and the rest bring up interest rates like New Zealand this morning. Do you have that optimism that we'll adjust along the way? Well, there will be adjustments along the way. And to the issue, and sorry to take issue with Matt, for example, two negative quarters of GDP, if we have them, don't, <laughs> don't make a recession. A recession is inevitable, but I don't think that it's um, imminent. And as, you know, as companies, I don't think companies experienced a recession or negative GDP in the first quarter. If you look at the income side of the accounts, 
a, a second equally valid measure of GDP expanded by 1.8%. And if you look at business surveys and you look at household surveys, people are negative about the economy because they're trying to handle this inflation problem, but they're relatively positive about their own financial prospects. The relative, companies are relatively uh, positive. Small businesses are relatively positive mm-hmm. about their own outlook. So there's this disconnect because people are Me trying though. to adjust to that inflation problem and they haven't experienced doing it. But, but research shows, contrary to the, what the Fed has tried to do, that households do not like inflation. Businesses do not like inflation. Yeah. I'm worried. And ever since Lloyd Blankfein told me to get my house in order, I've been freaking out about this. But I want to ask a couple of more Eurocentric questions, John. I asked Tom a couple weeks ago um, if a weaker currency is is better or worse in terms of um, inflation. How is Germany experiencing this in real time right now? As we see a euro go down to 102, you know, the inflation picture had rolled over there. Is it is it on the way down or can it pop back up? Well, we have to remember that when it comes to using currencies to judge inflation, currencies are a relative judgment. It's a relative judgment about the Federal Reserve versus the ECB. And it is quite clear that the Federal Reserve is much more aggressive and planning to be more aggressive in hiking rates than the ECB. So the currency reflects that relative judgment. But the U.S. has had a strengthening dollar and is suffering just as bad an inflation problem um, as is being experienced in core Europe. Now, certain parts of Europe, uh, you know, Latvia, for example, was uh, referred to in uh, uh, Powell's right. hearings, no, inflation north of 16%, inflation in Spain, 10%. Those are way, way above the 2% rate that the ECB uh, is, the, which has one objective. The, the ECB doesn't have a dual mandate. It has a single mandate. And John, as futures deteriorate, negative 43 on SPX, and we're watching euro really not through the new weakness, 102.88. John, what's so important here is Elarian and Riding seem to be on the same page that on a relative analysis, there's some real urgency here. Well, I'm looking at the urgency of some of the data we've seen recently, John, and allow me to go through it. The ISM down to 53 from 56.1. We'll take that. But the new orders component dropping into contraction territory for the first time since May 2020. It's part of the reason we see what we're seeing on the screen right now. And allow me to go that through through that with you. Yield to lower for a fifth session. We're down four basis points on a 10-year to 284. On twos, we're down a basis point to 282. The difference between twos and tens, a couple of basis points. Twos and fives, nothing. They're basically in line with each other. So, John, we're starting to see that inversion again off the back of weak economic data and a Fed that's determined to carry on hiking. Can you walk me through where ultimately you think this is going in the economic data? You've pushed back against that argument for a technical recession. Just where are you seeing pockets of weakness that you think we should focus on? Well, I think when you... A working hypothesis I have uh, when it comes to looking at some of those manufacturing numbers, like the ISM that you referred to, is in the midst of all of the supply chain difficulties. And those supply chains are only easing slightly. Companies may have overordered in order to try and get some inventory uh, to meet the demands of their customers. And so with that comes a sort of cycle adjustment um, where you've overordered. You cut back on your orders because you start to see better improvement in your supply chains. Mm. And it's not really final demand 
that is the problem here. For example, in the first quarter, even if we take the GDP contraction at face value, that was coming off of an inventory adjustment from the fourth quarter. Final demand uh, was relatively strong. It was 2% in real terms, but in nominal terms, it was much, much faster. And so my greater concern is the impact of inflation eating into real purchasing power than it is this um, adjustment in the manufacturing sector that we're seeing that I think is quite possibly an adjustment to over-ordering to get through supply chain So, John, if that is your base case, can you walk me through how that shapes your Fed call about how far they can take Fed funds? Well, I, I think it's clear that the Fed has signaled they want to get a positive real or inflation-adjusted Fed funds rate. Now, for next year, the Fed has, at the end of 2023, a 3.8% Fed funds rate uh, assessment as the median assessment of the appropriate funds rate against the backdrop of a 2.6% inflation forecast. Now, I think it's extremely unlikely that inflation, which this year is likely to run at around 5.25%, is going to slow so much. We have a real inflation mm-hmm. psychology building in. So let's say inflation runs at 3.5% next year, which I think is more likely. Then you're looking at a Fed funds rate that may get to 4.5%. And is that a mistake? <clears throat> it may be a mistake in backward looking, but you may remember some while ago, and, and Lisa's not here, but, but Thank you know, God Lisa for that. said, what if the Fed overhikes? What if they make a mistake? And I said, the mistake was already made. It was made last year when the Fed mm-hmm. continued to ease into a rising inflation problem. Right. Now they have to correct that problem. And they're only, mo- they don't have a model right. of inflation that works. They're backward looking. They want to see a compelling reduction in inflation. And it probably means they'll over tighten the funds rate. And yeah. that is when you get the recession problem, probably late 23, 2024. Futures negative 43, Dow futures negative 340. John Riding, let's cut to the chase. John Farrow and I are going to be in Washington this week. We will speak with Adam Posen, who suggests 3% is the new 2%. Blanchard and others coming out of the great financial crisis even modeled out a 4% need on inflation to get things going. Where's the new 2% for John Riding? The new 2% should be sub 2%. Sub it should be 2%. 2%. The, it, it's clear that the, the work... Um, on what consumers believe about inflation. They believe inflation is bad. So the Fed may have a model, uh, and uh, you know, Pose and others may talk about a, a faster inflation rate to get the economy going. The faster inflation rate is what is killing this economy to the extent we are being hurt right now. That is a real problem. And, and households don't like inflation because it erodes their finances, and they see down the road, there being some action to be taken to rein inflation pressures in. So can we, we had for more than two decades a relatively stable 2% inflation rate. Can we keep a stable 3% inflation rate? Can we keep can a we? stable 4% can inflation we? rate? No, history suggests not. They history suggests not. They don't talk about flexible average inflation targeting anymore, do they, John? What do you make of that? Well, John, it, 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 the, in September 2020, when the Fed introduced, we're going to average 2% inflation. That's going to be your target, which means we're going to overshoot inflation. They really contributed to getting inflation out of the bag. And it wasn't just the average inflation targeting. It was the backward-looking nature. We have to hit 2% inflation. We have to hit maximum employment. We have to have the prospect to be moderately above 2% for some time before they even began lifting off on rates. So, no, I mean, if you talk about averaging 2%, it becomes a real 
a real problem given yeah. how high inflation has been. And so the Fed is – they put in escape, escape clauses. They're going to switch back at some point just to straightforward 2% inflation targeting. But we're a long way away from that number right now. John, we got lucky. TK, very lucky. What a clinic from John Riding of Bring Capital. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.